Few people in government have more experience in federal labor relations and employee issues than my next guest. For the past year, she's been chairman of the Federal Labor Relations Authority. She's also someone I've known and interviewed several times over the years. For an update on FLRA and a few other things, Susan Sway Grunman joins me now. Susan, good to have you back. Tom, great to be with you again. And the FLRA, now you've been there about a year, and just because I know some of the other jobs you've had earlier, is chairman of the FLRA kind of a divided job? That is, do you have administrative duties for the operations of the uh, apparatus supporting the board, or do you get to spend all your time on cases? You're absolutely right. My workload essentially doubled from being a member to the chairman. You know, it's all hands on deck. Everybody plays. We've got a great staff, very supportive, very intelligent, and a lot of institutional memory. So it's a good place to be at a good time. But it's not a good place in terms of the budget allocation from Congress, which is starting to cause some problems. You nailed it. So here's where we are. The proposed funding levels for 2024 range from $28 million to $29.4 million. So using the high mark, 29.4, that's still $200,000 lower than we were two decades ago. Now, factor in inflation since 2004, and you can pick your inflation rate, but the bottom line is while our funding once sustained 213 employees on staff, today that number only supports 112. That's almost half of our staffing levels for the last 20 years. And yet, the mission itself has not changed. If anything, the work has expanded with rising unionization in the federal sector, a sharp spike in filings in our Office of General Counsel, up almost 60% in the last two years, and increasing demands for more tools and assistance to facilitate resolution of labor disputes. We are busier than ever, and yet we're at a 20-year low in funding. That's kind of surprising because there's a lot of members of Congress, and certainly the current administration has been full-throated in their support for unionizing, whether the federal or the private sector workforce. You're right. But, you know, compare us to other agencies, and not just any agency, but specifically those that address workers' protections in both the private and public sectors. The MSPB, the OSC, FMCS, NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, the National Mediation Board, they've all seen an increase over the last 20 years, ranging from a 20% bump to over a 100% bump. The FLRA is the only, the only agency in the negative column. And note that our sister agency, the NLRB, was flat funded for 10 years, but we've been so for double that time. And you and I, we all understand that we live in times of fiscal austerity and that flat funding is a reality, but with inflation, and an anticipated cost of living increase, there's just no more meat left on the bone. And what effect has this had, do you think, so far? Well, if nothing changes in the proposed funding that we're seeing, like many agencies, 80% of our funding in any given year goes directly to support our people, our staff, salaries, and benefits. The remaining 20% indirectly supports our staff, infrastructure, IT, rent, Worst-case scenario, what we once thought was a mere possibility may now be the eventuality. We're talking furloughs, beginning as early as next year. 
furloughs is the same people who process the cases, investigate the charges, mediate, litigate these matters, and issue decisions. They will be sent home for periods of time. And that directly impacts when and how long disputes will linger government-wide. It will have a ripple effect, not just on our agency, but on every agency and its unions that bring their concerns before us. Now, we've had a little experience in this area, so if you don't mind, I'd like to share it. They say that justice delayed is justice denied. With over four years without a general counsel, we had a number of ULPs. So as a result, when an acting GC, Charlotte A. Dye, was appointed in 2021, she had almost 500 cases waiting for her on day one of her job. In some of those cases, the parties and potential witnesses had moved on. And in one particular case, a party died. And while Ms. Dye and our amazing regional offices were able to clear the backlog with cases now scheduled well into next year, keep in mind they're still dealing with cases coming in with almost 60% increase. So as she has said before, it's like trying to tread water while you are drowning. We're speaking with Susan Sway Grunman, chairman of the Federal Labor Relations Authority. And just to clarify something you said earlier, is it in fact down to 112 employees from 213? Correct, yes. Okay. And maybe just help us understand the nature of the cases when you were at the Merit Systems Protection Board and later at the Office of Congressional Workplace Rights. Those were individuals that had a grievance with another individual or maybe with the hierarchy of their agency. In the case of the FLRA, is it always a bargaining unit versus the government, or do individuals have issues there also? That's a great question. You're right in that we see individual cases at OCWR and at MSPB. Here, generally, it's unions and agencies. Occasionally, we will see an individual, but we are here to adjudicate the issues between agencies and unions and their bargaining disputes or their lack of bargaining disputes. It's a different dynamic. Also, in comparing MSPB, there are a number of statutes that generally come into play. At the FLRA, basically, it's one, and that's the the Federal Service Labor Management Relations Statute. So it's a little simpler, maybe, in some sense. It's not any simpler. It's just as complex, but all the disputes generally focus on that one statute. And how has the workload been? I know during the Trump administration, there were some major issues that I think it was the VA and the American Federation of Government Employees, and there was a big dispute that went on for some time over 15 or 16 of the clauses and a big agreement. But that all got resolved, and I guess there's a new makeup to the board, of course, because that changes when the administration changes. So with all the moonlight and roses expressed by the administration between itself and the big unions, shouldn't the workload be going down now? The workload is always high. Disputes are always there. As much as parties try and resolve their own issues, that's where we exist. And let me take a moment just to kind of dispel a myth that might be out there. Some people may perceive us to be at the end of the process, that we don't enter the picture until the parties cannot reach an agreement. But in reality, we are there throughout the process. We're there in the beginning to educate the parties on their rights and protections under the law. You will see videos on our website. We're on YouTube. We just released a five-part series on collective bargaining in the federal sector, our version of streaming, and it's received record numbers of hits. 
We're also there in the middle. We offer mediation services, facilitation services through all three of our components, the Office of General Counsel, the Federal Services Impasses Panel, and the authority. And the resolution rate for most of these cases is extremely high. And then finally, of course, we're at the end of the process with the issuance of the decision. But one of the things we want to do is to give the parties tools to not only resolve their current dispute, but to resolve disputes in the future. And how do you ensure that the two sides, let's say, management and the unions, perceive the FLRA as impartial, as a referee, and someone whose judgments are according to what the statutes say, as opposed to pro-labor or anti-labor? I think the parties who come to us understand what our role is, that it is an independent, quasi-judicial, neutral And that comes through not only through our adjudication process, but through mediation as well. We don't take a side. And getting back to the budget issue, you have been to Capitol Hill to talk about this. What do they say? What's their answer when you show them these numbers that the buying power is 50 percent of what it was two decades ago? We understand these are times of fiscal austerity. And the other agencies also understand it as well. But we're the only agency that is funded not only at a lower level, below the rate of inflation, but lower than the actual dollar amount funded at 20 years ago. So come on, Tom, let's do the math. What if you were paid at a rate less than you received two decades ago? What would you do? I would leave, but you know, you can't, the FLRA needs to exist because it's statutory. So that's why I'm just curious as to what the members say when confronted with this information. Exactly. And I think the message that we've borne is that this just isn't a union issue. It's not a management issue. It's a good government issue when the parties are deprived of an efficient means to resolve their disputes. And another question I had, given the workload that you say that is steady, regardless of who's in the White House or whatever, are there any recurring patterns that if the unions could see them or if management could see them, they would know how to head them off in the first place? Are there things that come up over and over again? The issues change over time. In the beginning, and this is before I arrived at the authority, the issues were going into remote work. Now the issues have come to returning from the remote workplace and expanding telework. So the issues will morph over time, and there will always be changes. The core to our work is always the right to bargain, and we understand that in our preamble itself, in the beginning, that labor organizations and collective bargaining are in the public interest, and that is central and core to our mission. And just a final question, a little bit of a wild card, because you have experience in the private labor market as well as an attorney and involved in some private sector unions. Do you think the fact that federal unions cannot bargain over wages and financial benefits, does that help focus them on issues that really matter to the mission somewhat more? Maybe it's better that they don't bargain over money. That's a good way to look at it. The Act itself is a delicate balancing act. On the one hand, you have a very strong management's rights clause. Unions cannot strike, there's no self-help, and there's no closed shop. But on the other hand, under our statute, union officials get official time. And central to the statute is the ability to grieve, to arbitrate, and to appeal. So it is that balancing act, and it does work out. 
Tom, let me go back to another point. We understand that funding is a privilege. We believe that we earn that privilege every day. But the bottom line is that at the current funding levels are unsustainable, not just at a lower level, but below the inflation rate, which was an actual dollar amount we received 20 years ago. And you've asked a lot of good questions, not just today, but over the years. So here's one for you. Does this funding level send a message, not just a message to our employees who work tirelessly, not doing the work more for less, but for less and less and less? Is the message to a larger community that labor management relations between agencies, their unions, and the employees the unions represent, are these relationships less significant, less substantial, less worthy of a fundamental investment? Susan Sway Grunman is the chairman of the Federal Labor Relations Authority. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for letting us tell our story. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. 
what have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. 
And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, And over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. 
neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.